Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Coming up on Studios America, it's 2022, and the left is still gung-ho on grifting us with their climate change disaster nonsense. Tonight, we're going to take a grounded and logical look at the future of our planet with some excellent guests, Bjorn Lomborg and Greg Wrightstone. Let's do the climate delusion. Stu does America. Well, as you know, the greatest threat to all of our lives and livelihoods is the climate. Yes, it's the attack of the weather. That's where we are in 2022. Um, It's an existential threat. Nancy Pelosi's told us that so many times over and over and over again. It's an existential threat, which makes this story all the much more interesting. Um, Fox News has looked at this and, and uncovered some interesting spending patterns from our beloved Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Nancy Pelosi says fighting the climate is so important to her, it's basically a religious thing. And it's interesting because uh, Nancy Pelosi only brings up religion when she's talking about abortion and climate. It's the only time she ever cares about it. Fascinating. Um, But uh, she uh, so religious that I mean, she's very religious. She just occasionally has to break that religion to take a private jet flight. And then that look, she's important. She can't be on the same plane as you. What do you, what do you even smell like, you know? You're like one of the regular people. What do you, you've got a, a weird, nasty look to you. You might talk to her or something. And obviously, our stench as a regular person sort of society is not acceptable to Nancy's uh, highly developed nostrils, which have only had 427 surgeries on them so far today. Uh, she has spent $500,000 on private jets since 2020, uh, despite describing climate change as an existential threat and the U.S. having a moral obligation to address it. Um, private jets, obviously, probably the worst thing. It's funny, they're the worst thing for the climate, but the best thing about being a human being. You know, it's the one thing that I will say, uh, you know, and I've been able to be uh, rich adjacent uh, to some pretty fancy people. And the whole uh, private jet thing is the biggest, it's the best thing about being uh, wealthy. Uh, it is, uh, it totally changes your life. And Nancy knows that. And she's not going to stop flying around just because your dumb climate issue. By the way, have I ever mentioned this? Um, Nancy Pelosi sucks. Mm-hmm. It's true. Nancy Pelosi sucks pen.com. Nancy Pelosi sucks pen.com. But with all of Joe Biden's enormous failures over the past year, it's easy to forget some of his smaller failures, like his campaign promises about combating climate change. In just a minute, I'll be joined by Bjorn Lomborg. He's the president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center and author of one of my favorite books, A False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. All true, by the way. 
there's so much to talk about uh, with Bjorn, but I want to focus specifically on realistic climate, uh, whether it's solutions and how we deal with all this stuff, the ridiculous government grandstanding that goes along with it. Plus, we'll do a real cost-benefit analysis of effective climate change measures and figure out once and for all what the best path forward is. Bjorn Lomborg, coming up in just a second. So does CBD work? More importantly, does it work for you? Well, over 90% of doctors say their patients have used CBD to treat a health condition. And when 9 out of 10 patients use it, it says something about how it's working for people. Uh, Let me tell you about CBDistillery.com. With over 2 million customers and counting, CB Distillery is the source to trust. Uh, If you have sleeping problems, um, I know when they did a survey, 90% of CB Distillery customers said they sleep better with CBD. Uh, Nagging discomfort, the same survey said 80% of their customers found that CBD helped them. Go to cbdistillery.com now. You can order online, no prescription required. If you enter SDA, you'll get 20% off. SDA, Stu Does America, SDA. uh, In the code, you'll get 20% off uh, at cbdistillery.com. At cbdistillery.com, it's not available in Idaho, Iowa, and South Dakota, but uh, I guess you can go to North Dakota and get it. cbdistillery.com. Well, happy Earth Day, everyone. I hope you're having a wonderful Earth Day wherever you might be. Uh, President Biden this week is going to slash greenhouse gas emissions. At least he's going to promise to do that. At least in half by the end of the decade, according to two people briefed on the plan as part of an aggressive push to combat climate change at home and persuade other major economies around the world to follow suit. This move comes as Biden convenes a virtual summit of more than three dozen world leaders Thursday. It's a virtual summit. I mean, I assume that's COVID related. I don't know why all climate summits wouldn't be virtual if it's such a massive problem with emissions. But we're going to go and try to investigate and learn and understand all of these issues. I'm welcoming back to the program Bjorn Lomborg. He is the author of False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Uh, he's also the president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center. Uh, Bjorn, thanks so much for coming back on the program. Hey, Steve, it's great to be back. Before we start, I want to tell everyone, if you care at all about this stuff, it's Earth Day. If you care at all about this stuff, you must own False Alarm. It is a fantastic book, and it goes through every single claim you ever hear in the media and gives you the details. You actually can understand where they started from and what they're trying to do with them and what the truth is. And I really appreciate you putting all the time into the book. Thank you. I'm very happy for that little capsulate review. It's it's my Amazon review. Five stars uh, on on Amazon from Stu. Um, Let's start with this uh, this this consensus um, or excuse me, the uh, the uh, the the conference they're doing virtually, thankfully. Um, They want to cut emissions by 50 percent in only a few years. Uh, Is that even forget if it's a good idea, but is it even possible and how would you do it? So, Stu, uh, almost everything is possible if you're just willing to pay enough. Uh, And so, yes, you can go uh, 50 percent reduction. It's twice as much as what Obama has promised, uh, but you can definitely do it. But it will necessitate large changes. So you'll need to go to about uh, 50 percent renewables. You'll need to get everyone to switch over uh, to electric cars. Uh, You'll need to weatherize houses. You'll need to cut down on on a lot of, of emission related stuff. And remember, The reason why this is a problem is because 
energy is the growth engine of our economy, and not just of the U.S., but around the world. Uh, remember 200 years ago, uh, nobody had anything but their own muscle power and some wood and some draft animals. The reason why we got rich was that we had lots and lots of power. And now we're essentially saying, yeah, sure, but you can't get that from fossil fuels. You will have to pay much more in order to get that from renewables or not use it at all. This is not going to take us to the poorhouse, but it is going to be costly. But what I really think is surprising is that, you know, Biden spends a lot of time telling us, oh, he's going to cut up to 52%. But he doesn't tell you how much will that actually achieve. Well, run it through the UN climate panels model, and you find that this will reduce temperatures by the end of the century. So his additional promise above what Obama promised will cut temperatures by 0 0.08 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, it's a little good. It's also a lot of money to spend for fairly little. And again, we've got to ask, could we have done that better? And the answer is yes. Yeah, and one of the things you, you talk about, I think, in a really smart way in the book, is is the, the, the way to look at this problem and how to handle it. You know, uh, there's a lot of uh, incentives for politicians to have big press conferences in front of solar panels that are available today. And that technology has really improved over the past 30 years. But instead of spending these incremental am amounts on solar panels as they develop through time, if we were doing more to do research on technologies that may become available in the future, we could solve this problem a lot more quickly and more realistically over the long term. Can you kind of walk yes. us through how that works? And cheaper, and we could get everybody else on board. Remember, most rich, well-meaning Americans are willing to pay a couple hundred dollars to tackle climate change. Biden is suggesting let's spend, you know, $1,500 per person. Mm. That's by itself unlikely to work out in the long run. You can do that for a couple of years. You probably can't do it for 10 years. You certainly can't do it for 80 years as we need throughout the 21st century. But remember, this is only rich, well-meaning Americans. You can probably also get rich, well-meaning Europeans and some other rich people around the world. But that's still a fairly small part of the planet. It's 1.5 billion people. The rest of the planet is going to emit about three quarters of all greenhouse gas emissions in the 21st century. Why? Because they're not rich, but they would like to be rich. So China, India, all the African nations, Latin America, they're not all that interested in saying, sure, let's uh, have less growth. Let's be less rich. They're unlikely to say, yay, cool, let's spend $1,500 more per person per year. For many of these nations, of course, it's money they don't even have. So the reality here is if you try to solve global warming the way we've tried the last 30 years by making these grand promises, as you as you mentioned, then not keeping them with technology that is still not efficient, we're likely to keep failing. We've certainly done that for the last 30 years. Mm. If we focused instead on innovating cheap green, new energy. So fundamentally, that could be solar and wind. As you mentioned, they've come down dramatically, but they're still not efficient enough because basically, and this is not entirely true, but it's roughly right, you still need to hook up a lot of batteries for when the sun is not shining or the wind is not blowing. Mm -hmm. But it could also be fourth generation nuclear. It could be fusion, the thing that you know all science fiction novels have. It could be carbon capture. It could be all these other great ideas. Most of them, well, all of them are uncompetitive right now. 
but American ingenuity could make them cheaper than fossil fuels. And imagine what would happen if you could innovate just one energy source that was cheaper than fossil fuels. You wouldn't need the Biden climate summit. You wouldn't need to twist the arms of Indian leaders or uh, uh, Chinese leaders and ask them, oh, could you please cut a little more, promise to cut a little more. They would simply switch because that energy source would be cheaper. So again, we don't solve problems by telling people, I'm sorry, could you have it a little worse and continue to be a little worse off for the next 80 years? That never works. What you do, do uh, what does work is telling people, here's a great new in in invention that'll actually make your life better, that'll be cheaper, and oh, not emit CO2. I think we've had a real world example of this happening um, recently here in the United States over the past, like say 15, 20 years, where we had this conversation about incandescent light bulbs. And at the time, the, there was a big government push to convert everyone over to fluorescent bulbs because they would save energy, they would be better for the climate, and they started phasing out incandescent bulbs. Well, just a couple of years down the line, were LED bulbs, which were much, much better, but so many places locked themselves in and spent money on the fluorescent bulbs as this midpoint by force when the market was there to provide a much better solution than either one of them just a couple of years later. I feel like, you know, we're, I, I feel like as a, I'm a conservative here in the United States and we're kind of told all the time that we're anti-science, but like not believing that these innovations are around the corner to me is really the anti-science view. Yes, and it's also a really bad way to solve the problem if you really care about it. I, I'm so surprised that John Kerry and many other people who allegedly really, really worry about climate uh, uh, change, they come out and say, you know, I worry so much that I'm going to recommend the same kind of policies that have failed for the last 30 years. Mm. If you really worry about climate, wouldn't you want to focus on something that's actually worked? And so again, let's make sure that we don't mandate people to do stuff they don't want. Most people didn't want the compact fluorescent light bulbs. They were cheaper uh, when they ran, they were much more costly, and they often gave very bad lighting. The LEDs, as you point out, everyone buys them because they're cheap, they, they actually give really great light, and they save you a bucket load of money in the long run. That's the way to solve the problem. Another way, perhaps more clear, is if you if you take Los Angeles back in the 1950s, it was a terribly polluted place, mostly because of of cars, uh, and and you know the standard sort of John Kerry approach to solving this problem would be to go to everyone in Los Angeles and say, I'm sorry, could you just uh, you know bike instead or run or walk or something? And of course, that's not going to work. Mm. What did work? was the innovation of the catalytic converter in 1974. Yeah, it costs some money. You put it on your, uh, uh, your exhaust pipe and you're done. You can drive much longer and pollute a lot less. That's the way you solve problems. And of course, that's why Los Angeles is today a much, much cleaner place. Look, it doesn't solve everything, but it solved a big problem without telling people, could you do with less? Mm. And that's, I think, fundamentally what you do over and over again when looking at these things is actually applying a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, so often, I feel like there's just a benefit analysis. Like we say, we should do these things because 
it will improve X, Y, and Z in the future. But the cost is an incredible uh, part of that. And it's not just money, it's opportunity cost. You know, I mean, putting in old solar panels that are inefficient locks you in, you spend money that you could have spent uh, furthering the technology and making those panels better in the future. It, I, it's, it's just difficult to see how politicians are going to come around to, to this sort of thinking because it might solve the problem, but in reality, it doesn't do any good for their, their careers right at this moment. And, and you're right that it is harder to get politicians to do this. But I think both Biden is actually, and to his credit, is saying that this is also what he wants. Of course, he has sort of, we should do everything. So right. even the smart stuff is on, on his list. Uh, but also a lot of conservatives are saying we should be spending this. And of course, the benefit to politicians is to say, if we spend money smartly on innovation, that means we don't spend, you know, we, we'll spend maybe $30 billion instead of $300 billion or instead of, you know, a half a trillion dollars. So we can save a lot of money that we can spend on all these other things that we would like to do, like cut people's taxes or give them better opportunity or better infrastructure and all these other things. So I think there is a real upside to say, look, let's try to make climate change not a trillion dollar problem, which will inevitably mean that uh, that voters are eventually going to be turned off and just unelect those uh, those politicians who keep giving them trillion dollar bills uh, uh, or pay. Bills has a double meaning in American, right? Uh, but you have to pay all this money. Whereas the politicians who say, I'm going to make it into a $30 billion problem, I'm going to spend it smartly, and then I'm going to leave you with all these other benefits uh, that we can either spend uh, uh, publicly or just give you back in your taxes. That would be a winner, I would imagine. Hmm. One of the big complaints you hear from uh, from people who are alarmist on this is it's going to cost us gigantic amounts of money if we don't fix this problem. And you talk about it. I mean, it is a lot of money. It's a couple percent of GDP, which adds up to an awful lot of money. But it, it seems like, again, like that is only part of the package. It doesn't take into account the good things that will happen over that term. Can you walk people through that? Yeah. So so fundamentally, it is correct. Global warming is a problem. Uh, so the world's only climate economist to get the Nobel Prize in climate economics, uh, William Nordhaus, has tried to and he's built a whole uh, literature together with uh, dozens of other researchers. And this is what the UN Climate Panel tells us in their latest report. The likely outcome is that if we do nothing about climate, it'll probably cost somewhere between three and 4% of global GDP by the end of the century. That's a not trivial cost. Remember by then the UN estimate will be about 450% as rich as what we are today. So instead of being 450% as rich, we'll be 436% as rich. Mm. That tells us two things. First of all, it's still going to be a much, much better world, but it could have been an even better world. That sort of gives, uh, you know, that puts in perspective when people tell you this is an existential crisis. No, it's not. It's a problem. It's not the end of the world. The second part of this, of course, is to recognize if you spend, say, one or two percent of GDP to solve the whole problem, you made a good deal. You spent a couple of percent you save 4%. That's great. But unfortunately, that's not typically what people are suggesting. They're rather saying, let's spend 5, 10% to solve a small part of the problem. And that's a little bit like, you know, curing your wrist ache by cutting off your arm. That is a bad deal. So again, we need to remember, we both have to pay 
climate damages, but we also have to pay climate policy damages. So we should make sure that the sum of those two is the smallest we can do. And that's, of course, what he got the Nobel Prize for. And there's a very smart answer to that. You should cut some, but not too much. And unfortunately, most of the rich world is talking about cutting way too much. Yeah, and this is, I know, a lot of the work you do at the Copenhagen Consensus Center as well. Um, I want to hit one more thing, though, because this is Earth Day. This is a global, a global thing. Um, we in the United States, uh, the debate is always seemingly about the same thing. People who don't, you know, you either care about money and that's all you care about and you're a conservative and you don't care about the earth. Or on the other side, you uh, want to cut emissions because you care and you actually care about the planet. However, globally, the, the issue is is different than that. And, and you point this out in the book. You talk about how when we are giving, let's say, aid to a poorer country, um, we oftentimes attach these sort of green policies to, as a condition of getting that money. And you call it a, a, a different kind of imperialism, which I thought was a really interesting way of thinking about this. These policies harm these countries and they're completely unfair to them. Well, yes, they they help them very little. So look, when people try to do good, they end up probably doing a little good. But if you could have done a lot more good, have you really done well, right. so, you know, for instance, for, for most of the developing countries, for most of the world's poor, they have much bigger environmental problems. So the by far the biggest environmental problem is indoor and outdoor air pollution. Uh, and then it's water and sanitation. It's uh, radon. And yes, it's also global warming, but very, very far down the list. So, again, if you want it to help them with environmental issues, you should help them with indoor and outdoor air pollution. Indoor is by far the most e effective and cheapest way to help them. And it's something that most people just even don't think about. It's the fact that almost three billion people cook and keep warm with dirty fuels like dung, cardboard, and wood. They cook inside, they, keep the, uh, they heat their huts uh, with, uh, with dung, and not surprisingly, it's about 10 times as polluted as Beijing is when it's worst in their outdoor air pollution. So this means that you know, 3 billion people smoke what is equivalent of smoking two packs of cigarettes every day. Clearly, that is something we should do something about. And that's mostly about lifting these people out of poverty. But also remember, environment is only one of the many problems that poor people have. They care about the fact that their kids die from easily curable infectious diseases. They don't have enough food for their kids. They don't get a good education. There are all these other things that they care about that we can also help with. So, you know, for instance, uh, immunizing their kids. It's about making sure that their kids get good food. Uh, that'll also help them in school. There are many, many other ways where you can spend a dollar and do so much more good. And that's why I'm a little surprised when people say, which they will say about Earth Day and about global warming, this is about helping the world's poor. That somehow we've gotten it into our mind to say the way to help the world's poor is by me not driving to work tomorrow. What? No, <laughs> the way to help the world's poor is by getting them immunization, by getting them food, by getting them access to our market so that they can produce, so they can get people out of poverty. And yes, we should also fix climate change, but it's pretty far down the list. And we should do so smartly by innovating so that they also get the benefit of great access to cheap and abundant energy but eventually without the CO2. Mm, there we go. Bjorn Lomborg, he's the president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, author of a great book, False Alarm, How to Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Uh, happy Earth Day, Bjorn. Thanks so much for doing the program. Likewise, too.
All right, back in a second. Let me tell you about a company uh, called Grip Sixth. These guys are awesome. They have great stuff, uh, belts, wallets, socks. Uh, I happen to be wearing a pair of Grip Six socks as we speak. And I, and I told the guys over at Grip Six, I said, you know, Glenn keeps the studio so cold, I have to wear warm socks. And I know I sound like a girl when I say that, but I'm totally embracing this. Like, I am a wuss when it comes to cold. I used to live in the Northeast, that's where I'm from, and I've totally lost it living in Florida and Texas. I'm now cold, like, all the time. Glenn keeps it really, really cold uh, in Texas, and uh, or in the, in the studio in Texas. And I don't wanna wear, like, big, giant, thick socks that don't even fit inside of my shoes. These socks are, are U.S. source wool. Uh, everything they do is U.S. source lifetime guarantee on these wallets. The belts are freaking awesome. And the, the socks actually keep your feet warm without you know, seeming like you've got a pair of slippers underneath your shoes. Do yourself a favor and shop American. Grip 6 is as American as it gets. They are made in America. Right now, their Valentine's Day sale is going on. And you can buy one, get one 50% off. It's the entire store. Grip6.com slash stew. It's Grip6.com slash Ah, you remember Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth. Oh, the documentary. What a fantastic one, wasn't it? I mean, it's okay if you don't remember it. It was ridiculous then, and it's almost completely forgotten about now. But coming up after the break, I'll be joined by geologist Greg Wrightstone. He's an executive director of the CO2 Coalition and author of the book Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know. We're going to get into debunking some of the outrageous climate change disaster narratives coming from the left and discuss the electric vehicle movement and the unintended consequences that the media doesn't tell you about. Plus, a common sense discussion on the long term effects of temperature changes on the planet and the importance of innovation. It's Greg Wrightstone joining us next. Happy to welcome into the studio Greg Wrightstone. He's the geologist, executive director of the CO2 Coalition, and author of the excellent book, Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know. Greg, thanks for coming on. Oh, good, good to be back with you. There's always climate change to talk about. There is, and I appreciate you staying. You have a flight coming up, and you decided to stay. Uh, even though I know you want to get to spewing that CO2 into the atmosphere, I do appreciate you doing this. I appreciate that. <laughs> but I love CO2, so yeah. I'm okay with a big carbon footprint. <laughs> that's right, that's right. It's, it shows a sign of a growing uh, economy. Um, let's go to, through some of the, the issues that are going on right now. One of the big ones is we are in the middle of a conversion to electric vehicles. I, you know, I was just reading about GM. They are currently building their final generation of uh, combustion engines. I mean, the final V8 the GM will ever make, they're just started making those that last generation right now. It's kind of a sad day, I think, for America in some ways, but the left will say this is a, this is a bright future ahead of us. I, I, I disagree. Uh, they are just not, electric vehicles are just not selling. America's not buying them. Hmm. It represents less than 1% of the vehicle fleet right Still now. Still less than 1%. Yes. And wow. uh, what we see here is, I, well, I've been talking a lot about this really unrecognized danger from electric vehicles. It's their lithium ion batteries that are highly volatile. These vehicles can spontaneously combust. 
They're extremely difficult or nearly impossible to put out when they catch on fire. Mm. And this can be at 2 a.m., 2 3 a.m. in the morning in your garage or in a parking garage. Uh, these are rare events, but they do occur. Uh, Chevrolet has just recalled nearly all of the Chevrolet vaults uh, for this fire danger. Uh, there was another Chevrolet Volt just last week that caught on fire in a parking lot. Uh, now the parking lots in the area are banning electric vehicles in their parking lot. And, and think about this nightmare scenario. This is the thing that I, I, it should keep you up at night. These things happen. What happens when an electric vehicle, uh, a Tesla or a Volt catches on fire in an underground parking garage beneath an office building mm. or an apartment building. It's going to be horrific. Uh, you wouldn't even be, the, the fire department could, could hardly get even get to it. If they could get to it, they couldn't put it out. Um, and mm. the to toxic fumes that come from these fires are, are horrific. And, and it doesn't seem to, I mean, everything I've read uh, says, even if you take zero emissions from the time the car starts being driven, it, it, you have to look back before that to the construction of the car. And when you do that, you have to drive these cars for incredible amounts of miles before you even start breaking even when it comes to emissions. Yeah, that's right. And it, it's, uh, they're, they're, it's a shell game for them. Right. It is what it is. They're moving carbon emissions around from the beginning part and don't talk about that's what requirement there. They don't talk about the critical minerals that are needed to create mm. these things, things like lithium, uh, cobalt, uh, and the rare earth uh, elements that we need to do that. And 80% of these are produced and refined in China. Uh, for example, cobalt that's needed, it's mined by child labor in the Congo, and then they ship it to China for processing. So we're, we've just recently become energy independent, our oil independence from Saudi Arabia and the Middle East. We've just achieved that. And what Joe Biden wants to do, he wants to change this energy dependence from the Middle East and oil to China for rare earth minerals. And, right. for, it, it, <laughs> and believe me, China is not going to be as willing to go along with what we did or what we want as Saudi Arabia has been over the last several decades. Yeah, I mean, Saudi Arabia's got its own set of problems, but they're not Indeed. China. Right. <laughs> they're not China, which is, is, is a positive in this particular uh, <laughs> context. Um, let me go to, because electric cars starting fires really bad. However, what the left will say is if you don't go to electric cars, we're going to have more and more wildfires in the West. Everything's burning down. Australia was burning down last year, and now the West is burning down here in America. It's getting worse and worse and worse. At least that's their tale. Well, it is true that fires in the Western United States, each fire, uh, we've got some horrifically large fires yeah. and much more intense, and it's our fault. I admit that, mm. but it has nothing to do with climate change. It has to do mainly with the forest management practices we instituted in the 1980s when we stopped logging, we stopped thinning the forests. Um, so right now, the Sierra Nevada Conservancy says we have four to five times too many trees per acre. And it's easy to think, you understand, that means a larger, more intense fire. Right, Because right. there's more fuel. More fuel for the fire. The other thing we don't think about is the second greatest cause of soil moisture loss, first is evaporation. Mm -hmm. The second greatest is the amount of water that's sucked out of the soil by the plants and trees. Mm -hmm. So now you've got four <laughs> to five times too many trees mm. competing for that same scarce soil moisture. So it's, it's adding to the aridity. And not only that, when the fires do start, they used to be able to take their equipment down the logging roads and get to it. And you need that equipment to, right. to, to put them out. Well, those logging roads have grown up 
So the only way to get people in there is to airlift them, and you can't airlift this. this. So it's, it's a compounding of, of all these problems. Uh, it's, it's the forest floor that's now full of grasses and, and uh, problems like that. I talked to a, I spoke with a radio host from Reno last week, and she told me that her homeowners association forbids her from cleaning the pine needles from her property. Well, these pine needles are just, it's, <laughs> It's, it's just, it's, it's a In fire waiting right? to, yeah. Yeah. yeah, give me a spark. I want to get it catch on fire. Uh, and so it's stupid things like that. Um, and we need, we need better, better forest management. But, and this, but this is a narrative that goes through all of these issues, I think. You know, I think it was Thomas Sowell who said there are no solutions, there's only trade-offs. And so when you do these things, there's always unintended consequences. There's always something that you're losing with all of this that you think you're gaining. And so they make an environmental case to stop logging, which I think to most people are like, well, yeah, we should stop cutting down those trees. That's bad for the environment. But in, in reality, you know, this is a renewable resource that we that you know human beings should be taking advantage of right we, we should have been doing that because if you like your spotted owls i hope you like it roasted and well done because <laughs> what they're doing is is i mean what do we have to do destroy the forest to save the forest right and and these fires they're, they're so hot and intense because of so much fuel that it's actually destroying the soil in the past these were mostly grass fires that swept through the area uh, just fa- fascinating history of, of fire in the West. Yeah, and we I, see globally fires, and in the United States, actually the area burned has been er, is significantly less today than it was 80 years ago. So it's, yeah. it's been increasing slightly, but not very much, and still much less than it was than 80, back in the old days. Yeah, and then we 20s saw and 30s. the same type of thing in Australia when everyone was saying like, oh my gosh, look at all this fire. And then you look at the trends and there's there's no trend of an increase. In fact, it was actually a, a, a relatively low amount of acreage burned in Australia exactly. uh, last year. And we're, we're working with a, a Brazilian group, the Intellectos. They're mm. a scientific group similar to the CO2 coalition. Okay. And I talk with their, peop- their people and uh, Rafaela, one of their leaders, she just laughs. She says, when t- people talk about the, the Amazon rainforest burning down, she goes, you can't burn down. It's a rainforest, it does, you can't burn it down. <laughs> she goes, you can cut it down and then burn it. Right. But most of these are, are grasslands that are intentionally set in the Amazon. Mm. And so it's, it's, a, it's a completely different narrative when you look at what's actually happening. What we see so often though is the same cycle, I think, which is, we can go a long time. I mean, hurricanes is a great example of this. We went for a really long time with no hurricanes. Ten hitting. years. Yeah, ten years, ten which years. was totally against what they predicted. Not, not, we haven't seen that since 1850. 1850. So we go through that period, and through that period, there's no attention on that fact that there's no hurricanes coming. Who's talking about no hurricanes? Then one finally comes, and we're right back in the same place again, where it's global warming is causing this. They're making them bigger. They're making them stronger. Uh, we saw that already uh, this year. We've seen a couple big storms that have gone through, obviously hitting uh, Louisiana and then up in the Northeast. It's, it's, almost impo- it's a difficult thing to push back against because when there's good news, no one cares. Exactly. And, and in fact, I drove straight into Ida. I, I, was, oh, yes. I testified in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania against a, a really bad cap-and-trade bill up there. Mm. And it was the, I drove straight into the eye of the storm, torrential rainfall. But after that, I went back and looked. The flooding at Harrisburg on the Susquehanna, there were 50 other floods higher than that flood. So what, of those 50 previous floods were, what were they, just, uh, they were all naturally driven. But this one's, this one's climate change, yeah. right? And that's, of what, course. that's what they want you to know. Yeah, that's what they want. Yeah. Um, they, 
we have this cycle where the media will uh, promote some big, scary claim. And even when the thing doesn't happen, they still get their positive news cycle out of it, which is incredible. We're seeing that with, you know, there's a report about climate refugees going on. And it's been in the news quite a bit lately. And this claim is based on all sorts of crazy assumptions and things that I've already, you know, their models have already missed on this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And in my book, Inconvenient Facts, I, I actually touch on this because in 2005, the UN predicted that there would be uh, 20 million climate refugees by 2010. Mm. So I went back and I looked at the census data of these most at-risk islands and found that population had swelled and increased greatly. People were flocking to these so-called at-risk islands instead of fleeing from them. <laughs> so in 2010, not to be outdone, the UN said, oh, well, it'll be 20 million climate refugees by the year of 2020. And now we look, you know, nothing, there, there aren't any, show me one climate refugee. <laughs> and the other thing I like to look at, uh, the Maldives, uh, an island nation chain in the, in the Indian Ocean, uh, very at risk. That's oh, flooding. it's That's what we terrible. Hear all the time. Yeah, it's going to it's supposed it's going to be underwater any day. Oh, right. There, there are 17 resort seaside resort complexes being constructed or planned in the Maldives. 17. 17. And they're they're insured. These insurance companies are insuring these mm. insurance companies avoid risk like the plague. And do you think these insurance companies and the equi equity company companies funding these are going to do this if there really is a risk? Uh, and in fact, these island nations that they're talking about, uh, we've had 400 feet of sea level rise since in 10,000 years. 400 feet? 400 feet. Wow. Since the last glacial advance. Mm -hmm. These islands geologically continue to grow. Mm -hmm. In fact, many of these islands are expanding, not contracting. Mm, yeah, that, it's a geologic process. Uh, uh, yeah, and, and you know, um, the book is really interesting because, you know, we've, we've talked about it before, but it, it's like one of those books that you go back to a lot of times. You, you see a chart here, you hear a new claim and you, um, you're always going back to reference it, which is great. Is there one thing in here that 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 that. Because I have friends who say, look, I'm they might be generally conservative, but, you know, they want to live in a clean earth. They want to live in a safe earth. And they see these things that are in the media all the time. And they say to me, like, look, why why not just go with solar power? Why not go with electric cars and make this better? Who, who, why, why, why defend we, CO2? But we the CO2 is the miracle molecule. We're being told it's the demon molecule. Right. We at the CO2 Coalition believe the combination of modest warming, it's warmed about eight-tenths of a degree since 1900. Mm -hmm. That's not too alarming to me. Uh, eight-tenths of a degree combined with increasing CO2. We see just huge benefits to the Earth's ecosystems and to humanity. And it's a story that goes unreported. Uh, by almost every metric, the ecosystems are, are improving. The human condition is improving. Uh, show me what's wrong. Uh, food crops are breaking, crops are breaking records year after year after year. Um, the um, in, uh, severe uh, related deaths, extreme weather related mm -hmm. deaths have declined 99%. Well, it's, a lot of it seems to be that they take us out of the process, right? They act as if we will not innovate, we will not adapt, we will not realize, you know, like uh, someone on an island, like the, 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 you know, the ocean levels, if they raise by a few inches, they're going to wind up putting seawalls and re reinforcing it. And they're not going to just move. They're not going to just drown. They're going to do something to stop these things. They're going to adapt if these things occur. Yeah, and with sea level rise, we have a lot of very good data that shows that sea level 
rise is not accelerating. Mm. And we started adding CO2 to the atmosphere, and if CO2 is driving temperature rise, uh, we should see some indication of, of sea level rise in starting in the mid 20th century. We just don't see it. Mm. And you ask me about, well, what's the most important chart? Yeah. One, one that I, it, there's, there's a chart, that, the temperature data. It's the longest thermometer-based temperature record uh, available, and it goes back to the year 1659. Mm. And we can see from this that the warming trend that we're in started more than 300 years ago. Uh, and That's before my SUV was exactly. built. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we had 250 years of warming that had to have been entirely naturally driven. Mm -hmm. But we're being told, well, that's all changed in the mid-20th century. Right. Now it's being driven by uh, carbon dioxide. Well, no, it's not. No, it's not. Uh, the same forces that have been driving temperature for those many hundreds, thousands, and millions of years are still in place today. Those, they didn't stop in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, and we also see what I like to talk about, and I'm working on this in my new book, is to look at the look back through human history. Look back, we're, we're being told, aren't we, oh my God, we can't let it get a degree and a half or two degrees warmer, or we're mm -hmm. all gonna have famine, or it's gonna be horrific. Yeah. What happened through human history when it did get that warm? And we can see that there's a strong correlation between the rise and fall of temperature and the rise and fall of human civilizations. The really warm periods, great empires rose up, food was bountiful, people prospered, yeah. and it was the intervening cold periods that were well, yeah. just horrific. And you have the, that in the book too, where right? cold is much worse for human beings than Absolutely, warm. <laughs> like the first great warming period coincided with the first, it was called the Minoan Warm Period, the Bronze Age, mm -hmm. the Hittites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the first Chinese, they all arose during this really warm period, and then it started cooling precipitously, and it was called the Late Bronze Age Collapse, coincided with this cooling temperature, and we went into many hundreds of years what was called the Greek Dark Ages, related to this cooling. And, this and we is, see that repeated time and time again. And this is all obviously happening before we really have a way to deal with temperature, air conditioning and heating and all these other things. Uh, Greg writes home, we gotta leave it there, uh, executive director of uh, the CO2 co Coalition, author of Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know, and a new book coming out soon. Greg, thanks for uh, coming on the program. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe to Blaze TV. BlazeTV.com slash stew is the place to do that. Make sure you uh, use the slash stew part of the address and the promo code stew because that's how they know. You like this stupid show, plus you'll save 10 bucks off your subscription. Um, so uh, I, it's interesting this, this hour we've been talking about the climate and what you're supposed to do about it. And it's interesting to kind of look back at Elon Musk as a guy who now I think is kind of popular on, among the right. Uh, I know this whole Joe Rogan uh, controversy has been going on, and they've broken down his left-wing versus right-wing guests, and they've included Elon Musk in the right-wing guests. And it's like, the guy that's building spaceships to run away from global warming is a right-wing guest? The guy who owns the electric car company is a right-wing guest? Like, I can't even keep track of this anymore. And it's interesting to see Musk's approach as opposed to some of the people we've talked about this hour. You know, Elon Musk is saying, look, first of all, I'm going to put up my money on this. 
yes, there was government assistance, which I certainly oppose. He says he opposes, but a lot of people who bought Tesla's got a lot of benefits from that. Let's push that aside for a second. He put his own money on the line and he said, hey, I'm going to build an electric car company. I think we can do it. I've driven a Tesla uh, before. They're really amazing vehicles and they have their issues. And we've talked about some of them this hour, but it's a much better way to approach uh, a, a potential climate issue with solutions that are people are going to choose. You're not going to have to force them into it. You know, we talked to uh, the guy from uh, Impossible Foods a while ago, and he's, you know, uh, he's big on the climate, though he seems be actually sensible about it. And we were talking about how a lot of people on the left want to force people to not eat meat. And he said, you know, the Chinese government attempted that. Uh, they said to their people they had to cut their intake of meat by like 50% in the next two years. And you know what happened? Even with the Chinese communist government, they still increased their, um, their meat usage. You have to make the meat better if you're going to have, uh, you know, something like Impossible Foods and for people, for people to choose it. And I think the same thing happens with light bulbs and, and vehicles and everything else. The stuff is going to be pushed down your throat, though. Uh, the Great Reset is all about that. Glenn's new book. Make sure to check that out. The audiobook is out now. Don't miss that. The Great Reset by Glenn Beck. We'll see you tomorrow.